So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 14. We'll be in verses 27 to 52. Mark chapter 14, verses 27 to 52. Commitment is tested. Not in the moments of ease and convenience, but in times of adversity. Now, commitment may have been given in times of ease and comfort, but the genuineness of it is displayed in the midst of hardship. See, an example, you know, a wedding ceremony, you see the bride and the groom. They make these vows of commitment to one another, where they say for better or worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. And y'all, it is beautiful to say. It is beautiful to see. Now, the sincerity of the commitment is most shown when the commitment is steadfast amidst trials, when things are worse, when there is sickness, when there is hardship. You see, hardships have a way of revealing one's true allegiance and devotion. You see, when the heat turns up, one's true commitment is exposed. Oh, beloved, how do you respond when the heat turns up? Well, in this morning's passage, we will see how Jesus responded. You see, in one of the hardest moments of his life, his commitment to the Father's will remained steadfast. And we will see it in this morning's passage. And so if you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 14, verse 27 to 52. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will fall away, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they couldn't keep their eyes open. They didn't know what to say to him. 
Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said. He's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They took hold of him and arrested him. One of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you, teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man, wearing nothing but a linen cloth, was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. You may be seated. So our big idea for this morning's passage is this. Jesus willingly submits himself to God's will. I'll say that again. Jesus willingly submits himself to God's will. In our passage, we will see three scenes concerning Jesus. First, we will see Jesus' sovereignty. And then we will see his submission. And thirdly, we will see his surrender. You see Jesus' sovereignty, his submission, and his surrender. And so for context, last week we saw that Jesus and the disciples, they recently celebrated the Passover. And it was during the Passover meal where Jesus predicted Judas' betrayal. And as they celebrate the Passover, Jesus transformed it by instituting the Lord's Supper saying the elements of the bread and the wine testify to what he will accomplish through his death as he fulfills the Passover. And so they left the upper room and they made their way towards the Mount of Olives, which brings us to our first point where we see Jesus' submission. And so as they traveled, Jesus made another prediction. He says, all of you will fall away. He predicts abandonment. The disciples will desert him. Leave him all by himself. You see, in chapter 14, Jesus has made a number of predictions. He's predicted his burial, the proclamation of the gospel around the world, his betrayal, his return, and now desertion from the disciples. You see, Jesus doesn't suspect it, but he knows because he's in control, because he is God. You see, he is sovereign and omniscient, meaning he is all-knowing. He is sovereign over all human history, from the next moments to the last days to the end of the last days and every second in between. You see, Jesus, he's never surprised, never caught off guard. No one could ever sucker punch him. He knows. And here he predicts 
the disciples' abandonment. And the reason why the disciples would abandon Jesus, it would be their attempt to save their own lives. You see, Jesus would be arrested, and association with Jesus will result in suffering like Jesus. So they flee from Jesus. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus gives the call of discipleship, where he says, whoever will come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Well, when Jesus was arrested, in that moment, the disciples chose to save their lives instead of lose their lives for Jesus. It was in that moment that they chose to love their life more than the Lord of life. Well, beloved, can we not relate? How there are moments when we don't want to identify with Jesus because we fear suffering like him. We would rather scatter from him than identify with him. And beloved, it is in those same moments where we love ourselves, where we love our life more than the Lord of life, more than the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. You see Jesus here, he predicts, his betray he predicts their desertion, and he says it fulfills scripture. He says, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. See, the prophecy comes from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, where God promised to strike the shepherd who is his associate. You see, Jesus is the promised shepherd. Jeremiah chapter 23 and Ezekiel chapter 34 testifies to the shepherd who was to come. Well, in Zechariah chapter 13, it speaks of a shepherd being struck, which will result in the sheep scattering. And it ultimately results in God creating a, it's a new creation of God's people. But the immediate result will be the disciples will disperse. They will scurry. And so Jesus predicted this, but that's not all that Jesus predicted. Look at verse 28. He says, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. You see, Jesus, he spoke with certainty about his resurrection. Have no reason to question it or doubt it. You see, death doesn't have the last word or the last laugh. He would rise from the dead, defeating Satan, sin, and the grave. As we sung in the song, death could not hold him down. And here we see Jesus plan a post-resurrection meeting. And y'all, don't miss this. As he made this plan for this meeting, there are some real implications you see, what's implied in this is forgiveness and restoration, that he won't hold them accountable for abandoning him. You see, Jesus didn't cancel the disciples. He is not in the business of canceling his followers, but he's in the business of forgiving, restoring, and cleansing us. You see, beloved, when we go astray, the good shepherd, he comes after us. And not only that, but he also forgives us, and then he goes before us. You see, through this, we see that God is a God of another chance. And beloved, aren't you glad that God is a God of another chance? 
that he doesn't cancel us when we sin against him. But instead, he has canceled our debt because Jesus paid it all. Praise God that he is a God who forgives, that he is a God who shows grace. You see, our Savior's love is steadfast, more steadfast than our devotion. Because even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. When Jesus gives this prediction, but not everyone was filling Jesus' prediction. In fact, one was offended. Look at verse 29. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away, I will not. You see, Peter disagreed with Jesus. He exempted and excluded himself from the disciples. He's like, they may, but I won't. You see, here he declared Jesus to be wrong. See, according to Peter, Jesus' accuracy in predicting the future went from 100% down to 99. You see, as we saw last week, what we see here once again is Peter's pride. He's placing confidence in the flesh, which is dangerous. You see, pride precedes the fall, and I know it from experience. You see, back in college, it's my first senior year, I said that I wanted to follow Jesus, and y'all, I tried to do it in my own strength. You see, it was graduation weekend, some of my frat brothers have graduated. I said that I won't drink any alcohol, I won't get drunk, and I won't party. And y'all, I fell egregiously. I did everything that I said that I wouldn't do. You want to know why? Because I depended in my own strength. It was through that fall that I realized that I needed to be saved. It was through that that I realized that I needed God's help, that I needed his grace, that I can't do it on my own because the flesh is of no help at all. You see, beloved, confidence in the flesh does not end well. It never does. So the question for us to consider is where does our confidence lie? Is it in ourselves, in our own flesh, or is it in the Lord? Look at verse 30. Jesus says, truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. You see, once again, Jesus makes a prediction. He emphatically declared that Peter would desert and deny him. And he emphasized when. He said, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, it would happen before early morning. You see, here Jesus declared what Peter will do, when he would do it, and how often Peter would do it. You see, Peter would deliberately and persistently disown Jesus. And y'all, we can trust that it would happen because of the one who said it. Yo, it's not us making this prediction. It's not some sort of fortune teller. But this is the Son of God who is all-knowing. And so surely he knows what Peter would do. 
And after hearing this, you would think that Peter would concede. But look how he responds. Verse 31. But he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. You see, Peter stood his ground, confessed an unwavering commitment to Jesus, even to death. He says, I will never deny you. Peter was blinded by his own arrogance and pride. He was trusting in himself, which will inevitably result in his downfall. You see, Peter disagreed with the one who has sovereign authority. And y'all, it should never happen. Jesus has never been wrong, nor will he ever be wrong. So the response shouldn't be disagreement with him, but submitting to him and trusting him. You see, because he is sovereign and omniscient, his knowledge far exceeds ours. And so we can know that everything that he says is true and will come to pass. You see, what's amazing about Jesus, the many things, is that he is the sovereign one who knows all. And this sovereign one is also the submissive one, for he submits himself to God's will. Is what we would see in the next scene, where we would see Jesus' submission. We get verses 32 to 34. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. And so they arrive at Gethsemane, which the name means olive press. It is a garden, and it's located at the mount, at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And so he tells the disciples to stay. He goes and he prays, but he doesn't go alone. He took the big three, Peter, James, and John. You see, these three, they have seen his power over death. They have witnessed his transcendent glory. And now they will see his agony and vulnerability. You see, Jesus was in anguish. And y'all, what did he do with it? Did he suppress it? No. He brought the disciples in. He was transparent about his distress where he says, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. You see, when tempted or distressed, beloved, do you deal with it in isolation? Or do you deal with it in community? You see, too often, in order to maintain an image, Christians aren't honest about our struggles and temptations and weaknesses, especially when we are struggling with them. And it results in us being devoured. You see, in moments of distress and temptation, help, comfort, encouragement, and prayer are available. We just need to be honest, confessing it to God and to one another. You see, strength, comfort, and help comes from God through his word and as he uses his people and their prayers. You see, beloved, the Christian walk isn't meant to be lived in a vacuum, but in the context of a local church. And as we see Jesus be honest about his distress, may it encourage us to draw near to him in our distress. 
You see, Jesus is a sympathetic high priest who's able to sympathize with us in our weakness. He knows our pain. He knows pain to a greater degree, and he is able to help. You see, when we're distressed, it's normally about a possible future, some sort of uncertainty. But when Jesus was distressed, it wasn't about a hypothetical situation. It was about a coming reality. You see, when we're distressed, we think we know what will happen, and so we're fearful. But when Jesus was distressed, he knew exactly what would happen. You see, in our distress, we normally picture God being absent. But in Jesus' distress, he was about to experience forsakenness. And it's because he endured to the end that he can help us in our weaknesses. You see, in distress, temptation, and weakness, beloved, may we draw near to the Lord Jesus who is able to help us in our weakness. Now, the question is, what troubled Jesus? But we've never seen this in the Gospels. But here we see him being in distress. So what was troubling him? Well, he was about to undergo God's judgment. He's the lamb who is about to be slaughtered. He's the one who has always known God's love and perfect fellowship, and he would be forsaken. He was about to be accursed on our behalf. And so he's dreading this humiliation. And y'all, what did he do? He prayed. Look at verse 35. He fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. You see, he prayed that the hour would pass. He came for this very hour, and yet he dreads it. You see, in his humanity, he desired for there to be another way. Not that there was another way. You see, God had no contingency plan. The death of Christ was absolutely necessary. For no death equals no forgiveness of sins, no atonement, and no salvation. Because forgiveness of sins is only through the shedding of blood. Justice must be satisfied. And it's through the death of the sinless one that it is. And so he must do it to fulfill scripture. But did you catch also how he addressed God? He said, Abba, Father. You see, behold the love that exists between the Father and the Son. This love is perfect never growing, never being perfected, and it is eternal. It has always existed. You see, the Father and the Son has always loved each other from before the foundation of the world. And so he prays to his Father. He pleads for the cup to be removed. Now this cup is the cup of God's fury for sin because God is righteous Sin provokes his righteous judgment, and he must punish. It is God's cup of wrath. Psalm chapter 75, verse 8 says, For there is a cup in the Lord's hand, wine full blended, full of wine, blended with spices, and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs. 
You see, the cup is the penalty for sin. It has been reserved for the Lord Jesus. He knew it and he dreaded to drink it. Similar to like, man, not similar to, I could kind of understand a little bit of dreading some sort of punishment. You see, growing up, y'all, I was a bad kid, a terrible kid, always getting in trouble in school. And the one thing I did not want was for my mom to be called. Because when the teacher called my mom, I knew that when I got home, I was about to get a whooping. And y'all, I would dread these whoopings. Like, for real. But there's a huge difference between Jesus dreading and me dreading. You see, I dreaded the whoopings, but the thing is, I deserved it because I was disobedient. Jesus is dreading this cup of wrath. Not, but he doesn't deserve it. He is innocent, and he will suffer for the guilty. There's also a difference in the degree of severity. You see, in comparison to God's wrath... My mom's whoopings was like an infant slapping my hand. You see, God's wrath is infinitely and eternally, incomparably worse than anything we could ever experience in this life. And the Lord Jesus was about to experience it. You see, he didn't want to go through with it. He pleaded. He prayed. But look how he concluded He says, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. You see, here Jesus willingly submits himself to the Father's will. Now, when he says, my will, this is Jesus in his humanity. is a human will according to his humanity. You see, the will is connected to the nature. God is one in nature, and so there's a shared will in the triune God. For Jesus, he is one person with two natures. He's truly God and truly man. And so he had two wills, a divine will and a human will. The proper theological term would be diothelitism. That may be right. I may have said it right. Ask John. He knows. (laughs) But here it talks about how the person of the Son exercises the will according to both natures. And so Jesus being truly man means that he has a human will. And scripture speaks to this. Throughout the gospel of John, you will see him say, I came not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, Jesus must have a human will to redeem us and be our example. His obedience was voluntarily. And we see it, Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 to 10 says that he learned obedience from what he suffered. And after he was perfected, he was the source of eternal salvation for all who would obey him. You see, Jesus submits his will to the will of the Father. And beloved, this is instructive for us. You see, in distress... Jesus prayed and pleaded, and then he submitted. He was persistent in his prayers. He prayed this prayer three times. And all three times he concluded, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You see, beloved, are you struggling? Isn't the words of what a friend we have in Jesus, we can take it to the Lord in prayer. 
or you or your family sick, desiring marriage, if you're married and desiring children, or pleading for employment, beloved, we can pray. We can plead, and as we pray, may we also pray for the Lord's will to be done. You see, from Jesus' example, persistent prayer isn't us contending with God's will, but it's a pleading and a willing submission to his will. You see, persistence should always be accompanied with the willing to yield to the will of God the Father. You see, in pleading and praying, beloved, do you pray for God's will to be done? Or are you only insisting that your will be done? You see, we can pray for God's will to be done because we can trust God. He is our loving Father. He didn't withhold his own son from us. He gave him up, and so we can trust him in all things. And, beloved, his will for us is infinitely and eternally better than our will for our lives. You see, y'all, this was convicting for me as I studied this passage Because sadly, there are times where I believe that I am better than God and that I know better than him. And how often as I was studying this, I'm confessing and convicted, constantly repenting. And I was like, man, Lord, you are trustworthy. You are good. You are my father. And as the hymn says, whatever my God ordains is right. Y'all, this hymn has been rocking me the whole week. Specifically, verse 2. Where he says, whatever my God ordains is right, he never will deceive me. He leads me by the proper path. I know he will not leave me. I take content in what he has sent. His hand can turn my griefs away. And patiently I wait his day. And patiently I wait his day. You see, beloved, we can pray and we can plead, but may we ultimately submit our will to God the Father, knowing that he is good and gracious and loving. As Barry prayed, his purposes are always good for his people. You see, Jesus, he's praying. He told his disciples to stay awake, but he catches them snoozing. Look at verses 37 and 38. Then he came and found them, found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You see, Jesus, he called out Peter, the one who boldly proclaimed that he won't deny Jesus. And here he can't even stay awake for an hour. You see, Jesus here, he commands them to stay awake and pray to avoid entering into temptation. And here Jesus teaches that prayer is an effective weapon against temptation. Did you see it? He spoke with certainty. He says, stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. You see, we are sinners, which means that we are weak and that we are frail. Sin dwells within us and we are prone to give in. Our enemies, Satan and the world, they are constantly tempting us. 
The flesh, our flesh is always enticed. And so in and of ourselves, we are no match for our enemies. But Jesus declares here that there is an effective weapon, and it is prayer. Now, prayer doesn't prevent us from being tempted, but it does prevent us from succumbing to it. You see, in prayer, we are focused on God, his glory, and his goodness. As we pray, we acknowledge our weaknesses. We are pleading for the Lord to help us. It is in prayer where our desire is, man, we want to want God's will to be done. You see, it's through prayer where we have a proper view of God, which gives us a proper view of sin and temptation, where we see it for the vileness that it is. You see, prayer strengthens us. Jesus declares that prayer is an effective weapon to tem- against temptation. He taught his disciples to pray. Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So the Psalms talk about it. Psalm chapter 19, verse 13. The psalmist says, keep your servant away from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. You see, we need help in our fight against temptation, and Jesus offers it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, how do we employ the Lord Jesus' help? It is through prayer. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. You see, beloved, if you want to effectively fight temptation, we must get on our knees. What temptations are you dealing with? Lust, sexual sin, anger with others, impatience with your children. Beloved, are you watching and praying? And y'all, may we not do it alone. You see, Jesus didn't tell just one disciple to watch and pray. He told all three Beloved, are you allowing others to help you fight temptations when you are facing them? You see, may we not, review, may we not view resisting temptation as this one-on-one boxing match. Instead, may we view it more as an offensive line fighting to protect their quarterback. You see, we fight temptation better when we do it together. Confessing temptations, praying for one another, and encouraging one another in the fight. And why do we do this? Is because we are weak. The flesh is weak. As Pastor John preached a few weeks ago, there is a war within. We need the Spirit's help to lead us and strengthen us. You see, beloved, do you pray? You see, your prayer life serves as a good indicator of how well you're doing in your fight against temptation. You see, we are more susceptible to sin when our prayer life is non-existent. See, prayer will keep you from yielding to temptations. And so may we watch and pray. 
And this would be a good thing to pray for one another as we pray through the membership directory. Pray that we would be a people who watch and pray that we may not enter into temptations. In the next few verses, we see an ongoing pattern of Jesus praying and the disciples snoozing. See, they're not alert. They're not on guard. And it will have ramifications for later. Look at verse 41 and 42. Then he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. See, the Father, he has answered the Son's prayer. The cup won't pass. And Jesus willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father. Now, why do I say that? I say it because Jesus didn't retreat or cower in fear. He tells him to rise, get up, and he goes to the betrayer. You see, in times of adversity, in the difficult moment, the Lord Jesus remained committed. Despite knowing that he would suffer, he submitted to the will of the Father out of love for the Father. You see, in moments of intense temptation, Jesus obeyed. And his obedience qualifies him to be our representative, our savior. It is because he obeyed, he can make a sufficient sacrifice to atone for sin. You see, God's wrath was satisfied through Jesus' death because he was the sinless one who offered himself. And all who trust in him are saved by God's grace. See, God the Father made God the Son the Son of God who knew no sin to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So if you're not a Christian, friends, I am glad that you are here. I want you to know that Jesus is truly God and truly man. He willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father, obeyed to the point of death, and it was at his death where he drunk the cup of wrath for sinners that sinners may be saved. And three days later, he resurrected from the grave and he offers forgiveness and life and salvation. So I would implore you to turn from your sin and trust in him. You see, God's wrath is as real as the cross proclaims it. In his love is as real as we see his son on the cross. And his forgiveness is as sure as Jesus' resurrection from the grave. Friends, I would implore you, trust in Jesus and be saved. If you want, you can talk with any of our members after service. We'd love to talk with you. You see, in this scene of Jesus being tempted in the garden and remaining faithful shows that he is the true and better Adam. You see, in the Garden of Eden, Adam was tempted, and yet he willingly rebelled against God. Well, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was tempted, but he willingly submitted himself to the Father's will. You see, in the Garden of Eden, Adam ate the forbidden fruit. Well, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus committed himself to drinking the condemning cup. You see, in the Garden of Eden, Adam said, my will be done. 
But it was in the Garden of Gethsemane where we see Jesus say, your will be done. You see, in the Garden of Eden, Adam's rebellion brought ruin and death through the Garden of Gethsemane where the Son of God obeyed. It will result in his death and resurrection, and he will bring life and restoration. You see, Jesus is the true and better Adam. And by God's grace, we are no longer in Adam, but now we are in Christ through union with him by faith in the Lord Jesus. And so the question for us, beloved, is which Adam do we look more like? Do we look like the first one who rebelled? Or are we looking like the second who obeyed? Is our life marked with persistent rebellion? Or by God's grace, there's growth in submission and obedience and confession and repentance when we don't obey. You see, as a Savior submitted to God's will, may we do the same and help one another by God's grace. The son submitted, and therefore he will surrender to the mob, which we will see in our third and final point, which is the shortest of the three. We will see the sons, Jesus' surrender. Look at verses 33 and 34. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. And so Judas, the one who ate at the Passover, left, put the plan in motion, and he returned with the SWAT team. It was authorized by the Sanhedrin. They've been trying to get their hands on Jesus, and now is their time. The sign of arrest was a sign of a kiss, which denoted friendship but it would be anything but friendship. Now, Judas likely gave this sign because it was at nighttime. And the mob probably didn't know who Jesus was. And they wanted the arrest to be as calmly as possible. We'll look at verse 45 and 46. So when he came immediately, he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They took hold of him and arrested him. You see, the betrayal was disguised as a cordial kiss, communicating a friendly relationship, but Jesus' not, not Jesus, but Judas' disposition towards Jesus was anything but friendly. You see, one doesn't betray the Son of God, do it deceptively, yet maintain a friendly disposition towards him. After the kiss, the SWAT team aggressively grabbed him, arrested him, but Jesus didn't resist. But one disciple did. Look at verse 47. One of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. John's gospel made it known that it was Peter. He went Highlander on them. He swung his sword, struck the ear of Malchus, who was the high priest's servant. You see, Peter tried to start something, but Jesus de-escalated the situation. Because according to other gospel accounts, he told, he told Peter to put up his sword, and he healed the ear of Malchus. Look at verse 48 and 49. Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you, teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me. 
but the scriptures must be fulfilled. You see, the arrest was unwarranted. Jesus was no criminal. He's innocent and sinless. And he even made known the proof. He wasn't hiding. You see, this Sanhedrin had no shortage of opportunities to arrest Jesus. He was publicly teaching in the temple. But they chose not to do it then because they feared the crowd. And so they wanted to do it stealthily. Here we see the sinless and righteous one be treated as a criminal. And despite his innocence, Jesus didn't dispute it. He didn't evade his arrest, but willingly allowed it to happen to fulfill Scripture. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 12 says, Because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. You see, Jesus surrendered because he submitted himself to God's will. His aim was to honor God through obedience. You see, Jesus prayed and submitted to God's will, led to a surrender in action. Y'all, my wife and I, we were talking about this passage, and she said something that was so strong. She said, we must learn to submit our wills to God in prayer so that we can then surrender to his in action. Let me say that again. We must learn to submit our wills to God in prayer so that we can then surrender to his in action. You see, we can surrender in action with full trust and confidence in God after we submit our wills to his in prayer. Paul modeled this. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, three times he pleaded for the thorn to be removed from his side And three times the Lord said that his grace was sufficient for Paul. Paul no longer prayed for the thorn to be removed. He said that he would boast all the more gladly that in his weakness the power of Christ may rest upon him. You see, beloved, we, if we want to surrender to God's will in action, it begins with submitting our wills to him in prayer by faith. As we read in the scripture reading, casting our cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. Look at verses 50 and 52, 50 to 52. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man, wearing nothing but a linen cloth, was following him. They caught hold of him, but, left, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. You see, Jesus was arrested. And the disciples ghosted him as he predicted. Their loyalties were revealed. Jesus was to the Father's will, and the disciples were to to themselves. Now, why the contrasting responses? Well, compare the preceding actions. Jesus persistently prayed, and the disciples persistently slept. And so Jesus, he humbled himself and submitted himself to the Father's will, And the disciples, in their arrogance, trusted themselves. You see, that's why. And so they fled for their lives. And as they fled, Paul, not Paul, but Mark, he's stressing the fact that Jesus was all alone, which is part of the reason why I believe verses 51 and 52 were recorded. Now, we don't know who this random streaker was. Many believe that it was John Mark, the author of the gospel, But we will find out in glory. 
You see, like the disciples, he himself has fled. Sadly, he would much rather lose his linen than his life for Jesus. You see, in the text, we see Jesus, the submissive Savior. In adversity, he chooses faithfulness over fleeing. He chooses obedience to the Father's will. Willingly submitting himself to the will of the Father, which will lead to him suffering on our behalf, which will ultimately lead to our salvation. Praise the Lord that he obeyed. Praise God. We see his love for the Father and his love for us as he submitted himself to the will of the Father. Beloved, may we behold our Savior. May we love him. And may we strive by God's grace to be more like him, obeying our Father. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your kindness, your love, your faithfulness. Your love displayed in you not withholding your son but giving him up. God, we praise you for your son's obedience. How he willingly gave up himself, willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father. And how his humiliation resulted in his exaltation and our salvation. Oh God, we praise you for your grace. Father, may we behold the Son, our Savior. May we become more like him. May we imitate him in his obedience to you. God, help us by your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.